Revelation 20 Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And seized the dragon, that ancient servant who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he was released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word and had not received his mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four animals of the earth, God and Magog, to gather them from the sand of the sea.
hate women. I love the one I live with. Value them both voters were accused of mistrusting and hating women so badly that my head is still reeling over how value them could have been turned into you hate them. The trust women versus the value life chasm broke my heart. Are there really that many people who regard a human embryo or fetus as just a mass to be discarded? I was heartbroken over the decision that was made by those who showed up at the polls in our own state. What do we do when we feel defeated? Well, actually, my time in God's Word began to soften my dismay over the election. My time in 2 Timothy on Wednesday reminded me that selfish and ungodly people will increase in the last days. August 2nd did not catch God by surprise. And the more I contemplated the text for this sermon, the more I realized that we can have confidence In the ultimate outcome, while battles may be lost, victory of the war is guaranteed. And the reason that God gave us the book of Revelation is to encourage us in the battles by reminding us that the war will be won. The victory of good over evil doesn't happen in the voting booth. It doesn't happen in the state house or the courthouse by either party or any political action committee or lobbyist. Victory occurs only when a rider of a white horse appears from heaven. For we see in Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I see in Revelation chapter 19 a majestic return of the Lord Jesus. And right now, while earth may seem sometimes overwhelming, It may seem sometimes that evil is winning. We are reminded that there will be a majestic return of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he appears in majesty, he also leads a victorious march. Carson and Beale, two theologians that I respect deeply, have written a commentary called the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And they note in these verses 11 through 16 that almost every single verse makes a reference to the Old Testament. For the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God, and the God of the future who will be victorious is the same God who is and who was and who is 
to come. As a matter of fact, what, what do I mean by this New Testament makes allusions to the Old Testament? Well, in verse 12, we're told that there is a name that no one could refer to, a name that no one knows. In the Old Testament, the name for God, which was spelled with four letters, was so sacred, it was never pronounced by Jewish people. And so this name that no one knows connects with the name that no one would speak because it is so special. Some read verse 13 and they see Jesus in a white robe dripped in blood and they think that this blood is signifying the sacrifice that he paid on Calvary. And while it is absolutely true that his blood and only his blood redeems us from sin, I believe the context of this verse is that the blood on his robe in Romans 19 is not the blood from Calvary, but it is the blood of his enemies that he conquers here in this chapter. Because see the context, he has eyes of fire, he has a sword that comes from his mouth, and he rules over them with an iron rod. This tells me that the blood that is on Jesus' robe in this chapter is the blood of those that he destroys. And I say he destroys. Because notice that Jesus is arrayed in white, riding on a white horse, and his armies, in verse 14, are arrayed in white linen, riding on white horses, but there's no mention of his armies having any bloodstains on their clothes. I believe that is because Jesus fights our battles for us. Jesus is more concerned with the glory of God than even we may be. Because Moses told the Israelites, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And the next generation of Jews heard through Joshua. See, I, God, have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. Later, Gideon had to wean his army down to 300 soldiers so that they would realize it was God who gives the victory. Because the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel would boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And by the time King Saul arrives to do battle, God had already caused the Philistines to turn on each other. But we read in 1 Samuel 14, when Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and they went into battle, behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was great confusion. No less than four times that we see just in these verses that God fights for his own glory. And God gives the victory. So we don't need to worry about being overwhelmed. We don't need to worry about being overcome. We don't need to worry that somehow we did not accomplish the victory because it is God who gives the victory according to his very purpose. 
And the victory that Jesus secures creates a gruesome event labeled the Great Supper of God. At the beginning of Revelation 14, we saw the marriage supper of the Lamb, a beautiful feast for all of the bride of Christ. But a little bit later, we now see a vast meal for the birds of the air. Beginning in verse 17, I saw an angel who was standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. I think verses 18 and later on verse 21 describe one of the most detestable scenes I can imagine. Dead bodies strewn all over the ground where the birds of the air are feasting. It's bad enough when I see four crows feasting on one piece of roadkill between here and Emporia. Can you imagine the, the land littered with the bodies of God's enemies and all of the birds feasting? When we look at verse 20, we see the ultimate victory over the Antichrist. The ultimate victory over the false prophet. God tells the beast, you're done. You're going to the lake of fire. God tells the false prophet, you're done. You're going to the lake of fire. And the demise of the Antichrist and of the false prophet sets up for us the beginning of chapter 20. Where we not only saw a wonderful return, we also see in chapter 20 of Revelation an extreme reversal. Things that seem to be one way turn out quite different. The first three verses talk about the doom of the deceiving dragon, the one who is known as Satan. We read in these first three verses of Revelation 20 that Satan is bound and thrown into a pit without bottom. And as he is thrown into this pit where he falls for a thousand years, then Christ establishes his throne in Jerusalem. He says, my people will reign with me over the earth. Now, who do they reign over? The few who actually survived the wrath that God has poured out in, this, in the uh, sermons that I've just given in recent weeks, at the end of the Great Tribulation, there will be a few who are still alive who enter into the millennium. And when they enter into the millennium, they do not enter as rulers, but as those who are ruled. And these Ruled humans will still be born with a sin nature. They will continue to procreate and die until the end of that future millennial kingdom of Jesus. And at the end of that millennial kingdom, Satan will be released from his pit, according to verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. And Satan will try to gather those who still have a sin nature upon the earth, and he says, Join me in battle against God and his people. 
Then in the end, in verse 10, we see that he is defeated and he is cast into the lake of fire. When Satan is defeated, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for us to imagine at the end of the millennium that there will be anyone who would align with Satan as he leads in this one final rebellion. It, it may be hard for us to imagine that anyone would align with Satan after 1,000 years of Jesus ruling himself directly from Jerusalem. But remember, Adam and Eve believed the lie of Satan when all that they had ever experienced was God's good creation. All that they had ever experienced was God's perfect goodness, and they chose to listen to the lie of the devil anyway. And at the end of the millennium, there will be some who choose to listen to the lie and they will engage in battle against the people of God. But they will be defeated. Verses 4 through 6, we read about a resurrection. The first resurrection is what it is called. It is a resurrection of saintly souls. In the middle of chapter 19, it describes for us that those who were either raptured or died before the tribulation, that we escort Jesus riding on white horses ourselves. That's us. Those who will be either raptured or pass before the tribulation, we come back with Jesus on these white horses. But notice in verse 4 of chapter 20, that little four-letter word also. Also, so in addition to us, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. These verses are describing for us that those who are martyred during the tribulation or those who remain faithful to God through the tribulation they are now seated with us on thrones during the millennium, given a position of ruling and reigning with God. It is worth it to endure to the end. It is worth it to remain faithful to God even when circumstances appear to be against us. For these saintly souls are resurrected and given honor by God himself. But not all people are given honor. For verses 11 through 15 tells us of a second death. Of those who died during the millennium. Of those who died during the tribulation. Of those who died during this period apart from Christ. What do we read in chapter 20, verse 11? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, 
I saw the dead, both the popular and the obscure. I saw the dead, those who died without Christ, now standing before this throne, required to give an account for their life. There is a judgment that appears before a great white throne. And both the famous and the obscure appear and must give an account. And notice what they must give an account for. Each person is held accountable for his own rebellion, for his own selfishness, for his own corruption. And when all of these people who are apart from Christ try to explain their life away, every single one of them is concluded, you are worthy of punishment. Everybody is sent to hell kicking and screaming, but I don't deserve it. They stand before the throne, their own rebellion, their own sin is exposed, and they must conclude, I am guilty of the punishment I am about to receive. Notice that those who died during the tribulation in the millennium will be judged in verse 12. Those who are buried at sea will be judged, the first part of verse 13. Those who died before the tribulation are given up in order to give an account, the second part of verse 13. And right now I must correct a common bit of tabloid religion. Notice the end of verse 13 of chapter 20. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. God does not send good. God does not send innocent people to hell. Sinners are condemned to hell based upon or according to what they had done. Sinners who never said yes to the grace of God are those who are sent into the lake of hell. It's not that God says, sorry, you missed it, you tried, but you weren't quite there. God says, your own sin deserves this punishment. And they are judged for their own acts. Of unrighteousness. You know, when all is said and done, you and me will be judged by one of two books. Those whose name is found written in the book of the lot in the book of life, the second part of verse 12, are guaranteed eternal rest. If your name is in the book, you're in. If your name is not in the book of life, your life will be judged by the other book that lists the deeds of your life. I wonder, are you prepared for a great reversal? Right now, you may be on one side and you say, "Uh, yeah, I've got life by the tail. Life is going good. Give an account for your life, you may be sent to the Lord. While at the same time, there may be others in this room who say, I'm committed to Christ. 
I'm committed to the gospel. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I, to the best of my spirit-enabled ability, I obey what the Word says, but it still seems like evil is winning. Are you prepared for a great reversal? We've been introduced to flip-flops, and I'm not talking about the footwear on the beach. We have become so exposed to reversals that they even have a nickname in social circles. A flip-flop is not just footwear. We have seen candidates flip, then politicians flop. We have seen policies mocked when one party is in the administration, and those same policies are adopted by the other party when their guy becomes a leader. We have seen athletes traded to a rival team. We have seen Dred Scott, Jim Crow, and Roe decisions reversed. We have seen the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act signed into law by a Democratic president specify that marriage and spouse are terms exclusive to opposite-sex partners. And DOMA, 1996, Democratic president, this summer, the defense of marriage is becoming the Respect for Marriage Act, and it's a 180-degree reversal by members of the same party. Food that used to be considered healthy is now deemed to be unhealthy. And I could go on and on about the flips and the flops that we experience, but that wouldn't be fruitful. I want us to think for a moment about the Bible's great reversals. You know the story of Joseph? Joseph, who was reversed from a pit of slavery to a prince in the palace? David, who was an obscure young shepherd boy who became superior to all other kings of Israel? Daniel, who was changed from lion feed to being honored by Nebuchadnezzar? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were reversed from burning to brilliance. Peter was changed from a fisherman to a fisher of men. Paul was reversed from an antagonist to an apostle. So many stories throughout the Bible where God causes a reversal of fortune. And while these are great reversals, the greatest reversal is that God brings dead sinners to life. And whenever we see death turn to life, it's important that we remember that some are resuscitated and others are resurrected. What's the difference? Well, those who are resuscitated eventually die again. Jesus resuscitated a woman's son. Died again. Jesus resuscitated Jairus' daughter. She died again. Jesus resuscitated his friend Lazarus, but he died again. Paul resuscitated Eutychus, the young man who fell out the window because the preacher was preaching too long. Yes, I see the clock. 
And in all of these resuscitations, the person died again. On the other hand, the greatest reversal is when God resurrects to eternal life. Jesus was resurrected as the first fruits of others who will be resurrected never to die again. We read about the martyrs. Those who endure to the very end are here in Revelation chapter 20, resurrected to eternal life to reign on a throne. The saints, every single one of us who places our hope in the death of Jesus Christ is resurrected from death to life. Each one of us who places our hope in Christ as the only mediator of the gospel, we are resurrected, not just resuscitated. I mentioned in my introduction that my Bible reading in 2 Timothy helped calm my anxiety since Wednesday. And my reading in 2 Timothy yesterday shapes my application and my conclusion to this message. When it appears to us that we are being defeated, when the other team seems to be winning, how do we respond? Paul wrote to Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Jesus returns, an epic reversal will take place. But until then, each one of us can do four things. We can remain calm. August 2nd did not catch God by surprise. We can suffer without becoming bitter. They may malign us. They may call us names. They may accuse us of certain things. Endure suffering. But don't become bitter. Don't become angry. Rather than focus upon you being maligned, how about if we do the work of an evangelist? Continue to proclaim good news. Continue to proclaim the gospel. And keep serving both in the church and for the community. How do we respond to Tuesday's outcome? Be calm. Endure without bitterness. Recommit to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and keep doing what you know God has called you to do. Because the reality is, is we exchange death for life. And we exchange defeat for victory when our sin is traded for the righteousness of Christ. Because of His life, victory and righteousness becoming ours, we can trade our sorrows for a life of faith. 
study the end times, not just to know what will happen to them, but the reason we study these chapters is so that we will be empowered right now to be confident in our obedience. When we see what will happen, it's meant to give us faith to remain calm, to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist, and to fill our ministry within the church and for the good of our community. I have one more song selected for us during this service. It was made popular by the group um, Point of Grace, and it tells us that I will trade my sorrows for the joy of the Lord. I will choose to exchange my pain for His goodness. Stand with me as we sing together.